This is The Shift Podcast. The Shift Daily Podcast is a bite-sized snack of The Shift Radio Show that we do all across Canada. On the podcast, Lacey Lee Elliott talks cars and road tripping and inspires our conversation of the best road tripping songs, which you can get, by the way, if you search on Spotify, The Shift, Best Road Tripping Songs 2021. Follow it. Are you okay with stolen turtles and how about Diet Coke? And Dr. Jason Kinderchuk checks in. He is the emerging virus doctor, helps us understand the numbers that we're going through in all of our provinces. Plus, in case you missed it with Ryan O'Donnell, all here on The Shift. Here we are, 2021, and so many exciting things coming in the world of road trips and cars and all this fun stuff, but we can't go anywhere, which sucks. (laughs) The one thing I'm particularly excited about is the the new Ford Bronco. I've been talking about it for the last bunch of, bunch of months, certainly on my radar for 2021. But as we look back, you know, we often talk about new cars only, like brand new cars only. But what about the ones that are like the, the 2020 leasebacks? What about these kinds of cars, 2019 uh, returns back to the dealership that you can buy and save a ton of money? That's the topic of the day today. Plus, where would you go with them? Lacey Lee Elliott joins me now. Uh, Lacey, um, I got to ask you, do you prefer Lacey or Lacey Lee? You know, it is completely up to you. My official legal name is Lacey Lee, but it does get shortened quite often to Lacey. And it's original and unique. And that's what I answer to. I will answer to both. (laughs) All right. Well, Lacey is here. Lacey does many things in the world of blogging and writing and all that stuff, including two pieces, which I'm excited to share with you. One would be cars and has a long history of cars. The other is the sort of, I guess it's a recent project of starting to explore, which is a little bit for Lacey and a little bit for the blogging, if I would say, if I recognize what you're doing, that you just head out on the road and that you just are taking these trips and you're going out and and creating things for yourself. Plus you're creating things uh, for content to share with other people. A hundred percent. You nailed it. And unfortunately, I mean, you brought it up at the beginning of the show, I was doing quite a bit of traveling adventures all over North America, and then got hit with the lovely COVID and some restrictions. So road trips now have taken a lot different (laughs) direction. And I'm going to be putting some time and energy into exploring some more local uh, places here in in beautiful Vancouver. We can't, luckily right now in BC, our restrictions are uh, pretty open. They do want us to stay home, but being able to get in your car, put down the windows, go for a road trip and just explore some of the beauty out here is one thing I am completely grateful that I can do that. I've got a job that I've got some amazing vehicles to drive to do that in. And, you know, we were talking earlier off air about just how beautiful BC is and being able to get out and enjoy some of the weather. It's, um, yeah, really exciting to do some more local exploring and make the best of the odd situation that we're all in. I love the perspective, the sort of positive gratitude perspective in all this. I think we need to find that. I had shared on the show a few weeks ago where I was going for a walk and thinking about my personal life, the show, my businesses, and thinking, what if it's like this for the next five years? Like, what what if we don't have a solution? Am I prepared to find a groove for me in this as is? 
Because I think so many of us are like, let's get back to normal, back to normal. Well, what if this becomes normal? So I love this part of the conversation because it allows for us to look at what we have here. I had Scott Moyer on. I don't know if you um, follow Olympic figure skating. Um, Scott was on last night and he was talking about some of the work he's been doing inside the um, sort of travel local, how beautiful is our country, what's everybody up to type thing. And it really got me thinking about, okay, this spring, this summer, what am I going to do? What am I prepared to do? And so what's the magic of the road trip for you? When you get on the road, you get moving. What's the magic that you seek? You know, I think there are two things for me. And the first one, I feel like everybody listening to the show right now will will agree with this part. You, as soon as you get your driver's license, no matter how old you are, there's always this rite of passage and this moment in your life where you suddenly equate having your driver's license to being free. You don't have to rely on your parents. You don't have to rely on your friends. You don't have to rely on any of that. So getting into a vehicle and, you know, back then for most of us, it's a crappy little rust bucket of a car, but you have freedom. And that, you know, as I've gotten older into my twenties and thirties is something that I still appreciate so much is just the freedom And I mean, let's be honest, again, going back to what's going on in the world right now, being able to get in your car and not even necessarily go anywhere, it gives you that freedom. And then as I've gotten older, for me, the road trips has been to just escape, really escape life. And if it's something as simple as taking a road trip, and I I ended up taking an RV all the way down to Mexico to get away, literally get away and escape my life. But even just last week, I was feeling overwhelmed and just full of anxiety. And what, like you said, what's going on? This is this, what if this is the way life is going to be? And I think it's overwhelming for all of us. And just being able to get into your car For me, it's putting on my favorite music and driving and just getting away. There's something about looking in your rearview mirror, and it's so metaphorical, but looking in your rearview mirror and kind of seeing the city behind you and the road ahead of you and just knowing that you can just go and get away and literally leave your worries behind you, even if it is just for an hour or, you know, a short 20 minutes to just escape life. And that for me has always been my love of driving, my love of road trips, and really just the one thing I'm grateful that I'm still able to do through all of this. There is something incredibly special about driving in the prairies for me. You see the road, as far as it goes, uh, you can see it forever, and there's something really cool about seeing that path. Well, this does raise the question for the audience that we've been speaking about all night, which is, what is your favorite road trip song? 877-399-9898. What's your favorite road trip song, Lacey? Oh, my favorite road trip song. You caught me off guard there. You know, I'm excited to hear what some of your listeners say or some of their favorite road trips because I have explored all of Canada in my car. So I'm curious to know uh, my favorite road trip song. It really depends on my mood. But honestly, just the other day, I was listening to Life is a Highway. <laughs> you got to ride oh, nice. it all night long. Um, I mean, that's, I, I feel like classic, right? <laughs> 
You yeah. can't go wrong with that. I would add on there some Def Leppard. Like I would throw some of those really good <laughs> songs in there. Maybe some Def Leppard Rocket. Anything that I can crank the tunes, roll the windows down and sing. And I, I mean, this is where my girly girl comes in. I, I love my my Donna, my Madonna and Cindy Lauper. And I, that's probably showing my age too. But there's nothing like girls like girls want to have fun when I'm alone in my car driving, sitting at a red light and just belting out the tunes and watching people's reactions around me. <laughs> yeah. Bare Naked Ladies, Gordon Album. I used to just sing that when I used to live in Fort McMurray, mm-hmm. it was such a long drive to Edmonton. I used to sing that thing front to back again and again and again. It's absolutely beautiful. All right. Uh, Lacey Lee Elliott is with us here on the show. Um, 2020 cars. If you had to pick a couple from last year that were really your favorites, because we are starting to get into that world of, can we get the one year used car by the second year used car by, um, which is where I like to shop for cars personally. I think that that's a very economical way to do that. I'm excited for the Bronco. Um, I doubt there's going to be many of them available after a year. Um, but I, I, so I might have to bite the bullet on that one. But if we look back just even to last year, Lacey, what were a couple of those road trip cars that you, that you love the best that you can share? Well, you know, I, 2020 for me, it's funny that you you mentioned the Bronco a couple of times and I know people were super excited about that. My 2020 vehicle kind of in that, I guess, similar type genre, honestly, was the Jeep Gladiator. And for those of you, I was actually surprised when I talk about this, how many people don't know what that is, the Gladiator. And I basically said, if the Jeep Wrangler and the Dodge Ram had a baby, they would have the Jeep Gladiator. And I people ask about comparisons and there's nothing out there quite like it. It is a Jeep and a truck. So for me, if you're someone who wants to go on adventures and do off-roading, I don't like the hardcore off-roading, but I do like to be able to get off the beaten track. And then you want to have a truck that is capable of towing. You've got the truck. It blew me away. I mean, Ram is one of the most popular trucks out there. Jeep is, is just so much fun because it literally fills and checks off every box that you possibly can think if you've driven um a gladiator or sorry if you've driven like a wrangler one of the small complaints is that it's not a very good daily driver it's not very comfortable so you put it into a slightly larger frame and you get something that even gives better like on-road manners if you're looking for something like a daily driver and I just absolutely love it. I, I, my only, I don't even know if it's my complaint, but the only thing I, I would complain about it, and I've heard people complain about it, is the price. Um, you're looking at about just over forty-two thousand uh, for, I think, the sport model, the base model, and if you want to get it all decked out. So if you want to get um, an automatic transmission, which I also want to say that this Jeep comes with manual, which is fabulous. Here in Canada, you probably want to add that cold weather group so you get your heated seats, your tow package so you can't actually tow with this, the um, trifold roof and everything so you get all the fun of the Jeep. You are looking at probably spending $70,000 for one of these, but again, you're getting a truck and a Jeep. And as far as road trips go, I mean, I don't think there literally would be anywhere you couldn't take this 
vehicle. And I, I, I can't even say truck. I was going to say there, there's nowhere you couldn't take this truck, but it's, it's more than that. And if you're one of these people that likes to have adventures and not be held back in any way, this is probably the vehicle that has you covered for everything and anything that you need, hands down, 100%. It's a bit of a surprise, but not really a surprise no to see it come out. Yeah. Um, the Bronco is, uh, I even saw someone had created their own rendering of a, a Prowler making a baby with a Bronco already to see if that's going to happen. <laughs> so I'm curious to see um, if that there's a truck version of the Bronco that comes out in this whole conversation too. All right, Lacey Lee Elliott, what about a, uh, what about a car for the car people from 2020? If you had to pick one car for the road trip, where would you, what would you pick? Well, and you know, something that I, I always forget about Volvo as a brand. People ask me all the time, what are my favorite vehicles? What was, what's my personal favorite vehicle? What would I buy? And I, I rarely think of Volvo. What I appreciate with having this conversation was that you gave me some time to think about this. And as I was thinking about all the cars that I've driven and I, I think I drive over 50 cars a year doing what I do. I The Volvo V60. Now, this is a station wagon. And then more specifically, 2020 brought out the cross-country trim, which is the, uh, the more rugged trim. So you've got a station wagon, which depending on your age and your head, you might kind of be thinking, oh, station wagon. But the great thing in today's generation is people aren't buying a lot of station wagons anymore because of the, I don't know, the connection they have to when they're older. Everybody wants to go into the SUVs and the crossovers. So the station wagon now going even into 2021 gives you a really unique vehicle. And Volvo, the V60 is super sleek looking. And if, if I was going to say it was a good looking station wagon, like it's, it's a good looking station wagon and Volvo interior is impeccable, like absolutely impeccable. The fit and finish, the trim, the comfort, everything about it is just luxurious and top notch. So you get into a Volvo V60 cross country, which is your luxurious, um, kind of luxurious in the way it looks and the way it drives. You've got the station wagon, which gives you something unique. And the space is a lot more practical than a sedan or a hatchback. And you throw on that cross-country trim, which gives you the off-road kind of package. So more ground clearance, the all-wheel drive, the off-road mode. And again, when you're talking about going on road trips, it gives you everything that you need. You've got something that's super comfortable on the highway, incredibly quiet. It handles well, drives well. And then if you do want to toss your bikes in the back, take it off-roading, you can get it dirty and really be able to do just, again, anything and everything you need if you're thinking of a road trip. And I, yeah, it's Volvo's one of those cars that I can't say I'm surprised by it. I never really think about it, but that Volvo V60 is one that if, if you're someone that wants to do a road trip and have something that's amazing and unique at the same time, that would probably be one that stood out for me for 2020. Lacey Lee Elliott, the All Points Road Trip is the website, theallpointsroadtrip.com. If you want to check it out, go there or on her Instagram as well, you can keep in touch with all the things road trip. I'm curious, Lacey, to see where we go in 2021, even if it's just down the street. But I can tell, 
uh, everybody that there are places that I have discovered so close to home that I had no idea that they even existed, which is a bit of a shame, but we're not going to put shame on it. Um, just use it as an opportunity for discovery. Thanks so much. I look forward to having you back and uh, chatting about this some more. It was my pleasure and I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you so much for having me on. This is the Shift Podcast. In the meantime, though, we got to check Matt's moon dial and make sure that we're good to go here for a little. Are you okay? Are we okay, Maddie? Uh, yeah, let's see here. Um, moon dial. Yeah, we're ready. Beautiful. All right. <laughs> yeah. Works. Hey, Matt, I'd say works. so. Yeah. Okay. Are you okay is what we do. And uh, we, we get your thoughts and whatever you want to comment on or be part of this. That's cool. Um, so we're going to start with the first, are you okay with this? Can you imagine one of your best friends breaking into your home and screaming this at you? Where are the turtles? Where are the turtles? Come on guys, get out of here. Where are the turtles? Where are they? Excuse me, I have an announcement to make. We seem to be missing a box of chocolate turtles with pecans and we will not be leaving the premises until we obtain them. Hand over the turtles now i ate them okay i ate the turtles they're gone we'll bill you <laughs> whoa <laughs> turtles are a beautiful piece of our lives yeah let's take a moment and acknowledge the turtle thank you Amen. um a singapore man is in custody after stealing his best friend's turtle uh, according to the Straits Times, he broke into his childhood friend's home during a COVID-19 lockdown, ransacked the bedroom before leaving with a turtle he claimed was promised to him. 36-year-old Roger Kuzen Juan later posted a picture of himself with the turtle on social media saying, hey, I got a new pet. Today, he pleaded <laughs> guilty to one charge of criminal trespass. The accused claimed he wanted to retrieve the tortoise that the victim had promised him. However, the court heard that the victim had not promised coo the reptile the turtle is uh back home if you're gonna thieve things is getting on um putting it on social media the best way to go like hey got a brand new brand new red sports car came with a free license plate look at it it's a b c d one two three doesn't work that's bad crookery no i uh, and it's and even the fact that he stole the turtle. Like, if imagine you had a friend who is constantly like, "Hey, you owe me a turtle. I want the turtle." And you're like, "No, this is my turtle." And then one day your turtle's gone. Who's your first guess? Somebody broke into my house and stole my turtle. It's obviously going to be this guy. I. It's a lar- <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking. Mm-hmm. Makes a great headline, though. <laughs> Doesn't it though? Makes a great headline. Um. Are you okay? Are you okay with Diet Coke? Oh, H-E double hockey sticks, no. Oh. Tastes gross. Diet yeah, Pepsi awful. all the way. Tastes I like, like Diet Pepsi. Just Anything diet. I'm allergic to aspartame, so I'm yeah. very okay with it, though. But it's the most rancid drink ever. It's all right. Just, well, yeah. yeah. With a little bit of, uh, you know, Canadian club, a little Diet Pepsi, heaven. Turns out one of the wildest rumors from the President Trump presidency was true. As a political outsider, 
Um, it's taking Donald Trump a little while to get his handle on how stuff works in the mm. nation's capital. Mm. Um, but there's one piece of White House protocol that Trump evidently has mastered. Because according to the Associated Press, with the push of a red button placed on the resolute desk... Oh, God, what happens when he pushes the button? <laughs> a White House butler arrives with a Coke for the president. <laughs> Thank God. I was worried there. He's just turning the Oval Office into an eight-year-old's drawing of a dream treehouse. Uh, so that first was uh, Stephen Colbert in 2017 about the Diet Coke button. Turns out it's a thing. And according to Tom Newton Dunn, a D.C. chief political commentator on Times Radio, President Biden has removed the red button, which is the Diet Coke button. Wow. The power of being a president. It's the Shift Podcast. COVID numbers are incredibly difficult to understand, and it's not getting any easier. This is the most mind-blowing piece of this puzzle. Here are numbers from Thursday from across the country, and just hear the disparity in how they're reported. Um, Seven-day average in BC, seven-day average, 481. Uh, In hospital, 309. 564 new COVID cases. In Alberta, uh, 678 new cases and a positivity rate of 4.8%, 726 people in hospital, 119 in ICU. So the numbers are absolutely different depending on where you look. In Manitoba, 198 new cases, five additional deaths. That's the basic numbers. And here's a clip from Ontario's report. Ontario has reported an additional 7,200 daily new new cases of COVID-19, and another 181 people have unfortunately lost their lives. We continue to see elevated numbers of people in hospital. At this present time, we have about 1,533 people in hospital with COVID-19 and 388 in the ICU. Although we have observed a slight decline in the last few days. Jason Kindrachuk joins me now. Um, Dr. Kindrachuk, <laughs> I should say. Um I I'll text Jason. So we've got a we've got a uh, we we got our personal banter here. But I want this to be professional, Jason, because I need to tap into your uh, not your Motley Crew brain, which we'll talk about <laughs> shortly. But I need to tap into your emerging virus brain here, sure, um, and help us understand what's going on. So I'll, I'll sort of expand on what I'd shared. In the data, we're hearing about positive test cases. We're hearing about hospitalizations a little bit and all that stuff. And we always look at the case numbers, the numbers. And then the first question somebody asks is, well, how many people got tested? That's a fair question, right? Absolutely. Okay. Now, inside that, we hear about hospitalizations a little bit, but we don't really hear about hospitalizations. That, to me, if I remember our conversations way back when this all started, that is like the the number that we should pay attention to. Well, and we need to know it, right? So when we think about what the burden of COVID-19 is, um, certainly there's the aspect of how many people are getting infected in our community because we need to understand what transmission looks like. The problem for us is, is that, listen, there are a lot of people that are going to get infected that have mild disease or have essentially no disease um, whatsoever. Those are the cases that, you know, we want to know that they're there, but we don't necessarily need to worry about. 
um, in regards to what the downstream effects are. The downstream effects are the hospitalizations. Um, and this goes back to this idea of, of the ultimate toll on our healthcare system. Um, it, you know, beds and, and nurses and physicians and, uh, you know, accessory staff and therapists are not a, you know, continually, you know, renewable resource. Um, so as we see, you know, increasing numbers going into hospitals, um, there is going to be that extra stress. And at some point we are going to hit a breaking point. It's a limited inventory of beds can flex, but that's really not the conversation. It's about the doctors, the respiratory yeah. people, you know, the nurses, the support staff, that is the threshold of inventory that can't really just change. So, I mean, they can add more beds all they want, but the reality is, is that, which is a great idea, but the reality is, is that if there's no one to man the beds, then yeah, right. Kind of a, okay. So we're all on the same page there. So hospitalizations matter. People in hospital matter. People in ICU matter because yeah. that's when we get to the point where we can't help people anymore. Do I understand that right? Absolutely. When we think about hospitalizations as well, in particular, when we think about people in ICU uh, that, that have been administered, you know, had been admitted to be able to get uh, mechanical ventilation. One of the things that we tend to uh, maybe you know, kind of think gloss over is this idea that, oh, once they're out of the ICU, that that you know, basically takes that case out of the hospital. Well, it doesn't. We have a lot of these cases that once they come out of the ICU, they're actually in long term recovery. Uh, you know, we, we've had a, a family member of my family that ended up on, on mechanical ventilation and came out, but is in, you know, really in, in long-term recovery. So these are people that still actually have a, a long-term effect on our healthcare system. So even when we hear about ICU numbers, there's the static ICU number that we hear on a day-to-day basis. But even as those cases are maybe dropping or they're shifting, the people that have been released from ICUs are still taking up possible bits. So you know, we, we have to kind of you know, add some context to what's going on. I think people are asking questions because there is this overflow of numbers. And as we see Manitoba starting to open up just a little bit, this is good. They've been the longest. Alberta, just a tiny little bit. Ontario clamping down at this point. So people are tired and people are trying to figure it out. And I still don't think the numbers from the government are clear. BC has this amazing COVID dashboard. It's a lot like the Johns yeah. Hopkins one. There's a lot of information on there for age groups and all that stuff. All the other provinces have nothing like that. And so clarity and communication in this to me after eight or nine months, um, I mean, our friend anniversary is coming up here in a couple of months when COVID started, <laughs> um, True. that the... Um, it seems to me that we haven't figured out the communication yet. And it seems to be as big of a problem as the virus. Well, and I think part of it is trying to understand what all the numbers mean, right? So, you know, when we think about things like test positivity rate, the test positivity rate to me um, is actually an important indicator because it tells us how many people within uh, a given population are testing positive. So, you know, if you look from day to day, the total number of cases may shift. So say today you pick up 300, but tomorrow you pick up 600. Is it really that there's been that much of an increase in cases, or did you just test twice the number of people? And that's where the test positivity rate can tell you, well, if it's still 0.5% on both days, or it's 10% on both days, you haven't had a shift. It's just been a change, in likely, in the number of people you're tested. But there's also a caveat to that, which is it depends on the region where you're testing. So a place like the U.S., where you have a really high population density, maybe now you don't see those shifts from community to community because of the interlinking between people and, and the ability of people to um, you know, be in contact. 
in Canada, it's a little bit different. If you think about, say, you know, northern Manitoba versus southern Manitoba, the test positivity rate in Winnipeg may be 6 or 7%. But if you go into northern communities, maybe now we're going up to 30 or 40 or 50%. If you only tested predominantly cases in the northern region, you're going to have a massive test positivity rate. Vice versa, if you're only testing in an area with low test positivity rate, low numbers of, of positive cases, you'll, artif- you'll potentially artificially skew those numbers. So you, I think we have to kind of pull the veil back a little bit on what we're actually doing in regards to testing or what public health officials are doing in regards to testing and what the data means. I think we are getting a little bit, I think, you know, lost in, in the minutia of what all the numbers mean and not necessarily getting a clear understanding of where do we sit today as compared to yesterday or last month or five months ago? So to your example, if I understand correctly, if there was 10,000 tests done in Manitoba, and if it was 50-50, where it was 20% up north and 10% down south, in theory, the number comes back as 15, pretty well balanced, represents it fair. But if for whatever reason, there's a storm down south and nobody gets tested, and you end up testing um, 15,000 people up north, that number gets skewed, looks like it skyrockets. The reality is the sample set has changed. Not compromised, just changed. Just changed, right? And, and it gives you a gain. It, it gives you maybe a, a bit of an artificial sense of what reality is. And we certainly saw this in Manitoba um, you know, earlier in the, in the fall time with you know, Steinbach in the Southern Health region had massively high numbers of, of you know, 40% or you know, 40% or above. Um, Winnipeg was still sitting around 10%. So if you looked at an average, if you took a balance of cases, now maybe it's 40 plus 10. It looks like 25% is a test positivity rate overall. That's not really true. It depends what, what region you're actually in. Okay. This is where I get tangled up. And this is why I needed to use your doctor brain is because um, in theory, because I'm, I'm such an existentialist by nature, right? How do people behave? Yeah. And we're nine months later, and I think that people are starting to get it, right? Uh, in Alberta, for example, where I am, they have dropped little things like uh, running nose for kids. Like the, the parameters are a little different when you go through the online testing or online sure. quiz, if you will. And so they've kind of figured out some stuff. Now, we had a situation with my son. He was exposed to a positive test kid. And the thing is, is that by our reason, if we use our brain, most likely he, it was eight days ago when he got his test, but based on the other kids that tested positive in and around that, that school group, mm-hmm. um, he was actually outside the window, but we got the test done. He follows the protocol. He's on the isolation anyway. Yeah. Reason says most likely he was actually with that kid before he even got COVID. Um, but we don't know. So you follow the rules. Okay, cool. But here's the thing. We've started to figure this out. People have started to figure it out. People have been able to follow the online quizzes from the different provincial websites and go and say, okay, I've followed the quiz. I'm accurately answering the questions. I know that back in March, every tickle in my throat, I was like, oh no, is this it? And today I'm like, nope, just allergies, right? And so in theory, that positive test number, not cases, positive test number it's possible that number could go up and it's good news. It just means that we're being more efficient in testing. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have more cases. I think the hope for us is that if we get more people coming in, 
in particular, if, if they are more cognizant of the fact that maybe they've had an exposure um, or they, you know, they notice some kind of mild symptom that pushes them to get tested, that we will identify those sooner. Um, you know, I think it still is this idea of trying to figure out what the composite of the data looks like. So the test positivity rate, it, listen, if we start to see drastic increases, um, what it starts to tell us is that there's, there's a change in the trend. Um, and yes, to a certain extent, maybe you have more people that are coming. But if your cases are still balanced across different communities in terms of total numbers of cases or total numbers of, sorry, of tests that you're doing, well, now it tells us that, okay, actually it looks like there are more positive cases that are showing up within kind of that finite region. So it looks like the virus is actually moving from point A to point B a little bit more readily. Um, but then, of course, we also have to look at hospitalizations. And, and I think it is one of the indicators that, um, you know, I think in some cases we've done a really good job in communicating in other cases we have not, is that, you know, the, the cases and, and test positivity will increase, it'll start to subside, but then what we tend to see in the background is that hospitalizations are still increasing uh, and it takes a little bit longer for those to both peak as well as for them to start to drop. So, you know, I, I think we, we really need to figure out um, from, from my standpoint, from certainly from, from the experts that, that I look to uh, for, uh, you know, for clarity on all this is better explanations for what the data is telling us at, at any point in time. And in particular, what the trends are telling us. Um, I think that we tend to get a little bit overloaded in, well, what's happening from yesterday to today? And I, I do this myself. Um, what, what are the numbers? Where are we looking at? Well, the you know, trends don't change specifically within a day. They're, they're a trend because it's you know a, a you know a composite of, of a period of time. Um, so I think we really need to be able to get that across to people again. Is that yes, you know, the, here's the caveats for today. Why maybe numbers look a little bit different, um, but we still have to wait a few days to see how those numbers balance out to get a better indication of what's going on. And by the way, if you still want to do your part as an individual, do all the things that we've been recommending all along. So how do we cut through that in the conversation? I mean, I'm not one to just talk about things and not try to find contribution to the solution here. So we have created just now a distinction between um, hospitalizations really is the base bottom line that there's no variance on. You're either in the hospital or you're not in the hospital. It might be misunderstood, but there's no variance there. There is with COVID cases is not COVID cases. It's positive tested COVID cases, like the language matters. Yeah. And the test numbers, the test result numbers is positive or negative test result numbers. We could have 500 new positive test results in Alberta, but we also could have a thousand new cases of COVID and just not know it. Yep. So yep. that's a thing. In, in in conversation this week from Dr. Dina Hinshaw, she had, I'm, I'm summarizing here, so it's not gonna be perfect. She had basically said, we're at 5% now positive test rate. It's way higher than the 1% to 3% that we were in the fall. Now, it's way lower than it was before. Clearly, when the number was up around 12 or 13%, the cases were up. That correlated. But it occurred to me that it's possible, and I just because there is the human element of interpretation on that data set, that it is possible that a lower number of positive test cases positive test cases versus case per day does not represent our success in this in that the more efficient we get in interpreting our illnesses and concerns, the more efficient we get in understanding how this works, 
could swing that number higher into more efficient test cases, meaning more people know what it's like to have COVID, therefore they go get tested, as opposed to everybody else that's like, I have some allergies, oh my God, I'm going to get tested for COVID. And so that that number to me does not seem representative at all of the situation. And the government now, I mean, you're not a political person, but I'm just going to throw it out there because I know the audience is thinking this. The government is hinging reopening on that number. Or are there other numbers that they're just not telling us? And again, that comes back to communication. So I don't know what you can say there or what you want to say there, but yeah, take it as I you mean, will. You know, what, what, what I think we need to be able to do is you know, certainly looking across um, communication and, and I think getting more involved in, in science communication uh, as a whole in the community. Um, we certainly know that there is kind of a separation between maybe what I view or I understand or I, what I interpret versus what somebody else does. Um, based on, on on their understanding of virology and epidemics and pandemics and all of this stuff. Um, I, I use all that to say that at the end of the day, we, we have to be able to have very concerted messaging that goes out to the public. And part of this is really to try, first of all, from region to region across Canada, to have some normalcy in how we're talking about uh, about these numbers and how we're talking about the situation in, in each province. Part of it, I think, is if you look at a headline from one jurisdiction versus a headline from another jurisdiction, what is it telling you? Is it telling you the same information? Is it telling you different information? Can you, uh, as an individual, interpret what is being said? And I don't think we have that harmonization of, uh, of the way that we're reporting this, this data across, uh, across the country. So I think that, that's a big perspective for us. I think we need to look at a better strategy to do that. The second part is also to to really talk about what we do and what we don't know. Again, we, we talk about, you know, this idea of the, the 3%, um, you know, uh, test positivity rate um, to, you know, as being an indicator of what we can start to reduce restrictions. You know, when we've had this discussion recently and, you know, in, in uh, a few different, uh, you know, direct message groups kind of on the side about what is that number? Is it 1%? Is it, if we talk about being below 3%, is it just sub 3%? Is it, sub 1%? Is it 0.5%? Um, wh- where does that actually sit? And what does it tell us? And I don't think we've done a particularly great job at being able to explain that. And um, I-, I think that, you know, we-, we have to go back to basics, in particular, in a time when we're, you know, kind of facing, uh, you know, vaccination and this, you know, kind of, you know, belief that, well, once the vaccines get rolled out, you know, everything's going to change. Well, you know, we know that the situation is not going to change overnight. So we need to somehow be able to make this, uh, you know, these interpretations digestible for the public. And it's more confusing when you hear data out of the states say um, everything's closed in California. Not everything. I'm generalizing. Forgive me. Everything's closed in California. Everything's open in Florida. Climates are similar. And yet the outcome is the same with one closed yeah. and one open. Um, you can watch a hockey game in Florida. You can't in California to make it topical to Canada. So um, that's also confusing. No, I, I agree 100%. And, you know, certainly um, I don't know how we're going to necessarily rectify that. You know, I keep talking about, you know, what, what we're going to be able to do post-COVID and how we're going to maybe meet some of these demands. Certainly we, we have to figure out a, a much better way to be able to communicate results. I don't think that there is any debate about that. Um but the unfortunate reality is we, we can't wait necessarily until after COVID to come up with solutions. Um, you know, I, I think we have to be able to get, you know, regain smart people across the country uh, to uh, to figure out how to talk about this um, more openly and more transparently with 
public so that there's a feeling of, you know, uh, you know, a common uh, threat uh, amongst all of us. Confusing, even for the doctor, I guess, eh? <laughs> That's why I'm the second smartest doctor in my house. That's right. There's two Dr. Kinjachucks in that house. Um, thanks again for the time, Jason. I, I really appreciate the clarity because, you know, here on the show, trying to cut through it all, which is what we do, uh, create some insight in this. I think it matters. And I'm, I'm guessing we're going to be talking about it again and again, because I'm convinced uh, that we're not getting clear information from the government at all. And it needs to be clarified so everyone can understand. And that sure would be nice. Now, I did invite you here and promise uh, that I would uh, that we would talk about what you think is one of the best bands of always. If you know, I'm, I wanted you to meet the other side of Jason. Um, <laughs> this is the driving to work to be a doctor side of, of Jason. So you've got a great perspective on Motley Crue. And I, I share that perspective of Motley Crue. Are they your favorite band of all the bands? But, you know, they're, they're surprisingly enough, they're not. Um, but I, I mean, listen, my, my musical preference goes all over the place. I'm massive Pink, Pink Floyd fan, massive Tool fan. Um, but Crue was something, you know, I, I was born in 77. So as a, you know, a mid 80s kid, you know, hearing looks that kill for the first time and seeing the video for the first time on much music was, and there was kind of an epiphany to that. And, you know, I think it was kind of this galvanizing moment as a young child of kind of saying, oh, yeah, like, I, I get this. I, I understand what this is saying. Um, as, you know, cheesy as the lyrics are now, you know, there was something that was, you know, kind of very kind of unique about it. And, uh, yeah, you know, certainly, uh, you know, my wife shakes her head uh, most of the time when, uh, you know, when crew comes on or, or something from you know, kind of that 80s period comes on. But it's, I, I just, I love it. It's, it's just enjoyable. All right. So if we had to pick one, uh, did you want to go with a Pink Floyd or, or, a, or a Tool or did you want to go with a crew? Because, I mean, we've got a second here, so we have some time to play a song to wrap this up. It seems like a, a perfect way to, frankly, put in the humanity of talking about viruses between two humans, um, one being a radio guy, one being a, uh, the emerging iris, virus expert. Um, so where, where, which song would you prefer? Um, you know, I, I think we, we kind of need some crew to kind of, you know, lift things up a little bit. All right. There it is. Dr. Jason Kendrachuk. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much for having me, Shane. It's the shift podcast. All right. The much-anticipated time of the night. Things are going to get spooky. I am going to uh, depart here because the horror movies thing is just, it's not my jam. But not to give away what Ryan's going to talk about, let's get started with In Case You Missed It. In case you missed it on the radio, here's Ryan High Top O'Donnell. Ding. Ding. Uh, if Shane thinks I'm going to not talk about the spooky stuff, uh, of course, I'm going to talk about the spooky stuff. I'll wait for him to get back. He needs to hear it, too. Uh, I've got a couple of quick, unfortunate movie notes. And the big one, the sad thing, is that James Bond has been delayed again. Oh, no. Again. I can't believe it. No Time to Die is now coming out on October 8th. Now, the one good thing there is that we'll be able to... God, I hope so. See it in theaters, which is great. So I'm okay to wait for it in that regard. However, I am sad that uh, it's not 
I, I was supposed to see this movie a year ago and now it's gone. I had planned my entire birthday party around seeing this movie and now I'm going to wait until next birthday. Sad. They should. They, oh, what was that? Uh, they should I have no idea. <laughs> that was me. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. One of the. Okay. Can you. It's a bad time to interrupt. I'm so sorry, but this is funny. <laughs> So <laughs> one of the well, I, this, I, this is terrible. I'm so sorry, right? One of the songs no, that good. came in as a recommended was Enya Caribbean Blue, and so I was <laughs> listening to it. Oh, it's just ending, and uh, I was listening to it quietly because I could listen to things off the air here. And uh, it's a beautiful song, but I mean, if you want to go for a drive on your road trip and have a good cry, um, that's probably the song for you. Um, yeah, the there, whole man. reason why that just happened was because I was getting ready to do one of these um, and, uh, and and get you set up for, um, you know, sort of cheering on your mm-hmm. on your um, on your piece, oh, which was, here. oh, my God, like I got stuff going on all over the place here. <laughs> there it is. That's all I wanted. Anyway, you got the right one. All right. Keep me. it on standby. All right. With the buzzer, fire. too. Well, because. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. Good. All right. Well, now that now that Shane has gotten all that stuff out of the way, what I was going to say, <laughs> so sorry, is that that movie should just be called "Nothing But Time for No Time to Die." Oh yeah, ding! Exactly. Thank you, Matt. You you na- hit the nail on the head there. Um, but yes, Shane, I'm sorry. It's about to get a little spooky up in here. Oh, I have got some fresh new information on one of the most anticipated video games of this entire year resident evil 8 no sorry not 8 anymore it is now just simply called resident evil village i have heavily edited this trailer to make it not super spooky so here's a clip i won't let you down someone please tell me what the hell is going on here no the place is full of nothing but blood and death there you are <laughs> let's see what you're really made of Ethan Winters Blood and death. I am so excited for this game. So Resident Evil 7, which came out in 2017, I believe, blew me away. It is one of my favorite horror games of all time. I've played it so many times. It's complete departure of the normal third person killing zombies. And it it became a first person survival horror game. Now, this one, they Capcom released all the new information. This game is coming out on May 7th, and that you can pre-order it right now. In fact, if you have a PS5, you can play a demo of the game, which is queued up, so I can play that before bed tonight, which is exciting. Uh, Capcom has also announced that alongside the next-gen systems, it will be released on the PS4 and the Xbox One, which is cool. Um, It is the sequel to Resident Evil 7, Biohazard. You play as the same character from that game. However, instead of trying to save your wife, you're trying to save your kidnapped daughter in this one. It's one of the first Resident Evil games that focuses more on supernatural horror instead of like genetically modified zombies. 
And one of the things Resident Evil is kind of known for, especially in the early days, is really bad voice acting. This one, oh, yeah. the voice acting in Seven is great. Uh, and this one, there's some clips that I took out because there was a lot of screaming and very spooky noises. Uh, so you're welcome, Shane. Uh, but I can, I can just That's hope funny. that the voice acting is top tier because what I've done for you, just to give you a little bit of a laugh to maybe make you feel a bit better, Shane, is show you what the voice acting was like in Resident Evil 1 because it's horrible, but it's also fantastic. Make sure to have your buzzer ready, Shane. <laughs> Don't scare me. That's what I was going to say. But just take a look at this. <laughs> it's Forrest. Oh my God. It's awful. I'm going to find out what caused Forrest's death. It looks like he was killed by a crow or something. Whoa. This hall is dangerous. There must be a back door somewhere. Hey, what is this? This house is dangerous. There are terrible demons. Ouch. You're wounded. What kind of demon attacked you? It was a huge snake. And also poisonous. I told you, don't worry. I'll just go and get some fresh air and be eaten by a monster. You saved me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's so bad. Yeah. (laughs) It's horrible. And I love it. It's kind of like the room where it's so bad. It's incredible. Uh, Resident Evil is nothing like that anymore. Seriously, when you get a chance watch the trailer it is some spooky stuff if you're a fan of anything horror i think you might like resident evil 8 resident evil the village i'm very excited only a few months away now uh sticking with the video game vibe this is some really interesting stuff a development build for the Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time has been discovered, and it shows what the development was like for the game, which is considered one of the greatest games of all time. This was back in 97 on the Nintendo 64. This dev kit, which was dug up from the uh, files of an old video game convention, has like in-progress looks at some of the villages you can play in, archery, and the fact that Link could turn into a fairy and you could fly across the entire map. All things that did not show up in the original game. Um, But it's really neat. And uh, as reported by Eurogamer, the demo, which was shown off at Space World in 1997, was found on an old N64 development cartridge. Do you remember when cartridges were how we played video games? Uh, Actually, the Nintendo Switch is using cartridges again. It's really satisfying when you click it in the Switch. Um, But uh, yeah, it's uh, once you look into it, the Zelda demo is playable, even though it's been sitting in an N64 for over 20 years. And people are discovering new things about a game that we thought we knew everything about, which is super cool. I love when these classic video games that define so many kids' childhoods uh new f- stuff is found out about him and i love zelda man that was the best zelda is incredible it's the best it's such a it's a game that introduces you to adventure in such an amazing way Zelda's a lot like the lord of the rings of video games where i think most people can generally agree it's like top tier of a genre um and i didn't grow up with this game i found it when i was in high school 
and which actually relates to YouTuber Video Game Donkey, who did an incredible video on this game a few years ago. And I thought I'd just play a clip of it to explain why this game is so great and why this news is pretty exciting. Gamers are a confused people. Some are blinded by nostalgia. Many of them think that realistic graphics make a game funner, and a huge chunk of gamers believe that Ocarina of Time is the greatest game of them all. Now you have to understand that I have no nostalgic connection at all to this game. Okay, the first time I played this, I was like 10 years old and I got the GameCube disc for pre-ordering Wind Waker. So I turn this game on and I say, this game is old and sucks b Now you have to understand that I was a f***ing idiot kid. Ocarina of Time is a magnificent, towering achievement for video games. It's so unique and creative and memorable. One of the first things you do in this game is you walk into a giant tree's mouth. You enter and the camera slowly pans down revealing the huge interior of the Deku tree. You see that it's cluttered with webs and malicious spiders and plants. Then very slowly, the music starts to creep in and you understand that this is a sacred place that has been dying for probably hundreds of years. This is how you establish atmosphere in a video game. Thanks, Dunkey. Exactly. <laughs> video Game Dunkey is an amazing YouTuber, by the way. But building off the Deku tree... <laughs> oh, no. Trust me. You have to <laughs> no, check I out appreciate his stuff. It. Delightfully weird is cool. Exactly. Delightfully weird. But one of the things they found at this dev build is the Deku tree, which is the first area of the game you get to explore. In the original build of the game, it was a dungeon slash prison for fairies and you had to rescue them. So completely different ocarina of time. It's cool stuff. Moving on. This is weird, but uh, let's just play this first clip. The best kind of prize is a surprise. <laughs> 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 I've got a surprise for fans of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Warner Brothers has shared a release date and a little synopsis, a little tease of Wonka, which is a new Willy Wonka prequel movie. And it's directed by the guy who made Paddington. I don't know if you've seen Paddington, the animated like live action movie. They're, both of them are outstanding. They're They're so great. They're really fun. Great family movie. Anyway. According to the studio, Wonka will explore the early years of Mr. Willie before he became the eccentric candy maker we all know and love. The movie will tell the story of a young Willy Wonka, his adventures prior to the opening of the world's most famous chocolate factory. It's going to be open for audiences on March 17th, 2023. But who will play Willy Wonka? Do you have any ideas? Jim Carrey. Uh, Drew Carey. Well, both of those people, and this is no offense, they're old. This is a prequel. I young Willy Wonka. Jim Carrey would make a fantastic Willy Wonka. However, unfortunately, uh, it is not. We're talking young. So the two people that apparently Warner Brothers are chasing, Tom Holland and Timothy Chalamet. Mm. Hmm. I like Timothy Chalamet for that. Timothy is one of my favorite actors, like younger actors working right now. And uh, it remains to be seen if either of them could pull off a performance equal to Gene Wilder or Johnny Depp in either of the movies. Because I rewatched Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the 2005 one, and it's actually delightful. It's really it's so weird and 
it's great. And uh, it was one of the last movies I ever saw in Calgary before I moved to Ontario. I have a weird, like, very strong memory about that. And then now I live in Calgary again. But still. Zach Galifianakis. Like, I would like to see them go, like, way out there. Like, totally. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Zach Galifianakis being, like, a sassy version of Willy Wonka. Yeah, but still really dry and direct, right? Like, imagine Mm -hmm. with the kids and the blueberry part. You know, and the, the, the kid turns into the blueberry or they get fall into the chocolate and, and he would just make some sort of dry comment about how stupid they are and then walk away. Yeah. Like, I think that would be great. Yeah. It'd be great. And before quickly, before it ends, in case you missed it, Ali in Calgary asks a great question. Would I recommend Zelda for someone who knows nothing about what you're talking about? When I worked at EB Games for six years, the first game I suggested somebody who had never played a video game before was was whatever Zelda game was out play them you'll fall in love with video games just like i did with those kinds of uh those games so check it out one of my favorites and when i got um access to some of those old emulator games zelda is one of the ones that i was looking for um absolutely because it's that cool very cool stuff thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like get it on apple podcast google podcast spotify and curiouscast.ca